Hi. So I should apologize up front for my voice this week. I was honored to be invited to visit and guest lecture at Wake Forest University in North Carolina. And I've talked a bit too much. So sorry about that. Here we go. When Donald Trump says women should be punished, or Mexicans are rapists and criminals, I'm telling or John you. McCain's not a hero, he is showing you who he is. Senator, you, you, you whipped out that Mexican thing again. He, look. Can you defend it? There are criminal aliens in this country, Tim, who have come into this country illegally, who are perpetrating violence wanna, and taking American lives. You want to use a big tar brush against Mexico? He also said, that? and many of them are good people. You keep leaving that out of your quote. I could have picked a lot of moments in the current presidential campaign season. But this one from Mike Pence at the vice presidential debate was just such a perfect meme. You, you, you whipped out that Mexican thing again. You, you, you whipped out that Mexican thing again. You, you, you whipped out that Mexican thing again. You, you, you whipped out that Mexican thing again. Pence might be able to dismiss what Trump said as that Mexican thing, maybe because Pence doesn't live in a place where words have very visible consequences. But there are such places, and I went to one, Southern Arizona. Some call it the last remaining patch of the Wild West. It has some of the harshest desert landscape on this continent. Its unrelenting heat and sunshine are easy to underestimate for those with cars and air-conditioned homes. Modern conveniences divide the fortunate from the less fortunate here. It's sadly reminiscent of the dystopian Hunger Games saga, where there's one zone of affluent people surrounded by those who just aren't as lucky. The situation here is more complicated than fiction, but it all does come down to one line in the sand. And that's where this episode starts. I'm Rupa Shinoy, and this is Otherhood. The border is a tall fence of rusty red-orange slats. From afar, it seems to ripple over the hills of Nogales, a city that straddles the biggest international border crossing in Arizona. I was with my best friend, Ava Romero, who's lived an hour north of here in Tucson for a decade. We parked in America, walked into Mexico, and followed the Mexican road that runs parallel to the border fence for about three blocks. So we're looking at some purple graffiti that says, Somos un pueblo sin fronteras. Justicia para José Antonio. José Antonio was 16-year-old José Antonio Elena Rodriguez. A U.S. border guard shot him through the fence four years ago. The guard said someone was throwing rocks at him, maybe to distract him from drug smugglers trying to scale the fence. But standing at the plaque that marks where José Antonio died, it's hard to imagine how someone throwing rocks from here could have been a danger to anyone behind the fence. So we're looking on one side of the street is the place where he was killed. On the other side of the street is a uh, painting of a baby photo of him, I believe. Looks like it's a baby picture of him. It's beautiful. Yeah. It's all done in blues with a bit of a yellow background. The painting is mounted on the side of a 25-foot-high cliff, with the border fence towering above it. It seems impossibly far away. I don't get it. 
For many people, Jose Antonio's inexplicable death was another powerful example of law enforcement's brutal disregard for the lives of young brown and black men. This murder happens like a week after the acquittal of Trayvon Martin's killer. Richard Montoya is a Chicano actor, and his performance troupe, Culture Clash, is known for its political satire and plays about the border. Those were mostly set in California. Jose Antonio's death drew Montoya and his group to southern Arizona. For an innocent 15-year-old, 16-year-old boy to be shot and on the streets of his hometown by U.S. bullets, we became obsessed and fascinated with the idea of, of tracking and tracing those bullets and what was going on in Arizona, what was in the water. It seemed like the intensity of what was going on in Tijuana, San Diego had its more intense period, more of the late 90s, around 2001, 9-11. There's, there's something... There's something far more complicated happening out in this desert. Things are just seemed a little bit more heightened here. Here, things are dirty. And on the day we arrived, the monsoons happened. I didn't even know there were monsoons in America. <laughs> Everything's kind of ancient here and, you know, biblical. Our computers all went whack. Our iPhones all malfunctioned. It was like, slow down, city boy. Listen, listen to the ancient desert, you know. They interviewed crusading priests, activists, migrants, Jose Antonio's grandmother. The resulting play, called Nogales, is a mashup of documentary, commentary, and satire. The week I was in Tucson, I saw one of the final productions in a tiny theater that had been sold out for weeks. I had to stand. Without any further ado, Borderlands proudly presents Nogales, storytellers in cartel country. The play begins with a man dancing lasciviously to this song. We soon realize he's Pima County Sheriff Joe Arpaio. People often say he gave Joe Arpaio a lot of stage time. It's because villains are so interesting. If this was a movie, Al Pacino would be playing Joe Arpaio. In this production, it's Montoya himself portraying the sheriff of the Phoenix area, sometimes called America's Sheriff, known for things like racial profiling and housing inmates in tents. We did spend several hours with Joe Arpaio in his office. Hey, listen, come on in. Don't be shy. Let me show you around me, the man cave of the sheriff's office. Come on in. Come on in. No problem. Do you want me standing or do you want me seated? It's, it's your movie. It's your movie. Don't be nervous. It's just a very popular share. 700 on the Google list is there again. 699 on the Google. Uh, you see there, you see there. Come on, let me show you around. He didn't need us to vilify him, but we wanted to kind of get Joe Arpaio straight, no chaser. How much of the interviews are representative of your conversations with the sheriff? Well, probably the most outrageous things, he actually said them. And we were told that we had 15 minutes with him. You know, after an hour and 45 minutes, he was just performing and couldn't couldn't cut it off and played for us My Way by Sinatra. And, oh, sure. That's in the play, too. And now the end is near And so I face up an idle curtain and his handlers were like, well, let's move it along, let's move it along. But Joe's like, come over here, let me, let me give you a gold coin and take the pink underwear and, and let me play, you know, let me, let's sing along to my way by Sinatra, you know. I have lived a life that's full 
There's a nasty business to sheriffing Maricopa County. The, the thing that we realized was that he was a consummate media pro and very savvy and it kind of lulled us into this sense with, you know, uh, an hour and a half with Uncle Joe and if, if you're not careful you think you might want to have a drink with him and he's not so bad as a kind of an aw shucks thing but when you consider that this is a son of Italian immigrants who's completely remade himself fashioned as a western sheriff it you have to remind yourself that there's you know underneath the the Wizard of Oz behind the curtain there's a real dude that reveals himself Behind the curtain, Montoya saw a guy who was deliberately trying to ignore the humanity of less fortunate people and encouraging others to do the same with Trump-style conservative rhetoric that Montoya argues is putting young brown and black lives at risk. Just driving through Maricopa County as a Chicano or, you know, Latino, U.S. Latino male, I, I often feel the heat of law enforcement. We're in this incredible moment of time of, of a Black Lives movement, and sadly, you can count many brown lives in, in those lives. And so, as a playwright and an activist, I'm hoping to link up brown and native lives with the Black Lives Movement that does not say all lives matter, we know that, but that these young brown and black, mostly young men, are in the crosshairs of law enforcement. Unfortunately, Montoya says, most of the people who come see the play agree with that message. Sheriff Arpaio's office says he hasn't seen the play and can't comment. A year after Jose Antonio died, the Arizona Republic reported he was haunting Nogales, citing his face staring from pictures in store windows and his name evoked in public art. The paper found Jose Antonio was the 42nd person to die at the hands of border and customs agents since 2005. Officials wouldn't tell the Republic how the officers involved had been disciplined. Resentment toward border agents grew, and things got tense inside some families. Because more so than ever before, border agents are Latino. border guard got diverse as the number of agents doubled over the last decade or so. Many of the new members of the border guard came from families that have straddled the border for generations, like agent Vicente Paco, who was born in Mexico but inherited U.S. citizenship through his father, who was born in California, to Mexican parents. Growing up, I, I used to be a cross-country runner, and some of the trails that I ran back in those days were, were trails used by smugglers or people jumping across the fence and you know border patrol was always around so I always have interest for law enforcement and, and it intrigued me and I saw it as exciting. 
We talked in a sparse courtyard within the Border Patrol's Tucson headquarters. It's a compound, really, of several buildings surrounded by a high wall. Coming in, I noticed a banner on the wall that said the Border Patrol was hiring. Inside the wall, the parking lot was full. Cars were crammed onto the tiny green space. Agent Paco and I were joined by another agent, Daniel Hernandez. My parents were both born in Mexico, as my brothers and sisters. I was the first one in my immediate family to be born in the United States. Hernandez and Paco say that helps them empathize with Mexican-American teenagers they're trying to reach. They say cartels target those same kids and try to recruit them to smuggle drugs and people north. That's one of our major targets is to talk to kids high school level that are able to drive, they're able to, to kind of move autonomously. They're the ones that if drugs or humans are smuggled into the United States, they can further take those humans or drugs north. But kids don't realize how dangerous working with cartels can be, Hernandez says. Hispanic families, for the most part, are, are a little bit larger. And by just having relatives in the criminal element already, that is a huge drive to kind of follow in their relatives' footsteps sometimes. You know, uh, my cousin's doing it, my uncle's doing it, and it can't be that bad. Okay, so how do you speak to those kids, but then not make them feel profiled? Well, the thing is, is I'm one of those kids. I need more than two hands to count how many friends that in high school were killed. I, through a different turn of events, would have maybe ended up the wrong path, you know, but I had good parents and, and I understood the risks involved. So is it a profiling? Uh, I don't believe so. I feel that because I am like them, because we are the same, that it's not somebody who's parachuting into the situation and telling them some advice they're not going to use, you know. So I invested in their future because it's my future too. When I speak to the youth, I, I make sure that they know that I guarantee you I was the poorest kid in my school for a long time. And it's such an easy cliff to fall off to mm -hmm. become involved with these cartels. And, and what we're going to do is we're, we're going to let them know there is an opportunity for you to break the cycle. You know, you can make a good living doing what I'm doing. In 10 years, you can be doing the same talk I'm doing right now. It's a good career to be on. There's scarce jobs right now. All we require is for an individual to have a clean background and be able to pass, uh, you know, medical examinations and a polygraph exam. How do Latinos respond to you? How do they interact with you? Sometimes people question my heritage and my patriotism. It's two different things, you know. I can still be, you know, reminded on celebrating, you know, the Mexican holidays and the Mexican traditions and all of that and still be in a position of law enforcement. That is, I have family members or friends that, that I grew up with in, in the border town where I was raised. And, and I, I tell them, you know, it's like it's another job. You know, it's, it's a job that, uh, you know, I, I swore to uphold the law. And whatever that law is, I, you know, I, I'm going to enforce. And, you know, I, I will do the job that I'm being paid to do by the American public. You know, we tell them, to, if you don't like the law, then, then change it. You know, we, we're, the ones, we're the ones that enforce the laws, but we're not the ones that create them. And most people don't know um, the steps Border Patrol takes to preserve life. Not only, you know, United States citizens, but people that we come in contact with. Like, um, we have rescue beacons out in the desert. Um, I didn't know that. When I, when I became an agent, I had no idea that there was places where people could go um, as a last resort. Things like that never make it out, you know. Sometimes we're, we're seen as this entity that might be a little stern and, and harsh to some people, but we're not. You know, we're actually a very... Caregiving. Yeah, we're, we're focused on humanitarian efforts as much as we are on law enforcement efforts. But that's smart, right? It is, but it's the right thing to do regardless. Right. It's, it's not because people are watching, it's because it's the right thing to do. 
and and that is probably under publicized you know we sometimes become the first responders in the middle of the desert to a group of immigrants that are lost or abandoned and and when they see us they're not seeing us as an arrest being made because it's life or death for them they see us as you know and 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 i've heard it before as like you saved my life and and the agency spends a lot of resources to ensure that the individuals we're coming in contact or, or making the arrest are in stable condition to be returned to their country. It shouldn't be a death sentence to walk across the border and, and perish. So you had an incident here with a shooting through the fence, and I, I don't think you can talk about that. But how do you repair after that? We're trained to do our job, and, and it's an unfortunate reality that sometimes we have to use deadly force. You know, I'm not gonna speak on specific cases, but I can tell you that our agents are well trained to protect themselves and the ones around them. But afterward. And then you talking about in terms of the community? Yeah. Well, as I mentioned, as Agent Paco mentioned earlier, I mean, we're doing the right thing every single day, whether somebody's watching or not. So our best, our best strategy is to continue what we're doing because ultimately, no matter how somebody feels about us, we have to continue doing the right thing no matter what. Some people do say that Latino guards are harsher. Have you ever heard that? That's, a, that's open to interpretation. I can speak for the actions of others, but I can tell you that when I, when I deal and I come in contact with an individual, I'm going to treat him with respect. My mother would be very upset if I treated anybody differently, right? I think maybe perhaps maybe other people judge us differently. I think that might be the the, the target right? audience. It does, but you just gotta do what you do to the best of your ability. Let other people judge you however they wanna judge you, as long as you're doing the right thing. We do pick up on a lot of nuances though. Being from the Hispanic culture, somebody might not pick up on like an insult or something like that, or maybe like a slang word or something like that. And I call people out on that. So I am guilty of that. You know, if I if I notice somebody who's like, hey, yeah, yeah, like, you know, maybe maybe the, the second uh, language person didn't catch that, but I'm a native speaker, so I might catch that. So that is true. There is some truth to that. It's harder to fool us. Exactly. Okay, so tell me if I'm wrong, uh, but I'm this way. Uh, my parents are from India, and many people say this, that as the kid of immigrants, you have just like a basic gratitude to be in the United States and to, to be American because you have so many opportunities and right. things like that here. So how do you deal with that when you interact with other people? Like when I go back to India, it's like all these, I, I look at all these people who don't have the same opportunities that I have right. just because I was born in another place. Right. So how, how do you deal with that? There is opportunity in, in other places. It might be harder, but it's, you know, I have successful family members that live in Mexico. Um, and, and when I come in contact with uh, individuals that may not have the opportunities that I have, I tell them, I was like, you know, we don't choose where we live. We, you know, we're, we're here and we make the best of it while we can. And, you know, to those who are over there and they might say, oh, you got lucky because, you know, you were brought over here and this and that and another. Well, I don't know. You know, it's hard for me to say that could have, would have, should have. That's an alternative parallel universe that I can speak on. So there are opportunities in other places. They're just different and maybe, maybe not as rewarding as they are in the United States. That's why, you know, this is the country where everybody wants to be on and looks up to. And, you know, I, I will make sure that my kids understand that. Well, for me, you know, I have an incredible 
gratitude for my parents for trying to provide me and my siblings with the American dream. So, But I do, like Agent Paco mentioned, that I do recognize that I'm fortunate enough to be in the United States and I'm proud of my country and I'll serve my country, but I do recognize other people's, you know, struggles perhaps in, in other countries. And uh, But at the same time, things are the way they are and I try to do the best in, in my community, in my world, you know, I, I try not to think too too far out. It's a great country and everybody wants to come here, but not everybody can, you know, unfortunately. But that's the way things are and I'm just grateful that I'm an American. of all of this border situation is new. It wasn't until the 1990s that the U.S. put up its first border fence, spanning a 66-mile stretch in California. At the same time, it stepped up enforcement in Texas. The government wasn't as concerned about the vast expanse of Arizona desert in between, hoping the harsh crossing there would deter people. That, I think, was the fatal flaw. Kat Rodriguez is with the Colibri Center for Human Rights, an organization created to help the families of those who die while crossing the desert. The center is in the same building as the Pima County Medical Examiner. It works with forensic staff to identify the bodies of migrants found without identification. And, you know, you're relying on what the families remember. And I often think when we're doing, you know, when I'm doing an intake with a family and you're asking about you know, whether their brother had dental work and, you know, scars and all of these things. And I will think about, like, how well would I do this if I was asked to do this for my brother right now? And I have three brothers. And I don't think I could provide very much, yet we depend on what the families can remember. After 9-11, a fence went up, dividing Nogales and running along stretches of the border in Arizona. Reina Arabi, Colibri's outreach coordinator, says the number of migrant deaths skyrocketed. From 1990 to 2000, the average number of deaths per year in this, this sector were 12. And then from 2000 on, that number has been around 170 per year. It's not ever, it's very, very, very rarely has anything to do with violence. It's primarily just being out in this terrain um, with such long and arduous and treacherous walks and getting hurt or, you know, not having enough water or food. You know, we don't know precisely how many people have died because we only have the data for people whose remains have been found. There probably definitely are thousands more, if not tens of thousands more, who've never been recovered. The families whose loved ones are found receive the remains in a box. Cat begs them not to open it because sometimes the desert leaves very little behind. You know, I mean, that's... Sorry. (laughs) That is probably the thing that makes me the most ashamed is like, here's what we're sending home to you. And, you know, we straddle this place of the living and the dead because we're looking at a skull on this screen and a picture of this guy at his wedding on another. And you just can't, you know, you just can't, like, sometimes reconcile that that person's not here anymore. I mean, that's... Wrong is not even the word that you could use. Like, there's not a, there's not a word... And it's overwhelming, but you know, I go home to my babies. I go home to my, to my husband, and 
some days it's really hard, you know, and it it's just a constant feeling like we are trying to make up for something our government is doing and it's not enough. Does it make you confront your own privilege? This is Raina again. It makes me think more about what I would get if I was missing or if my family was missing and it and it's just another way that we're discriminating and saying that they're not as important and not as valuable. And that's, you know, that's fueled even more when we talk about this national rhetoric around immigration and whether or not, whether or not we can like define one human being as more valuable and more deserving as another. And at Colibri and in this office, we see every day like the results of that kind of rhetoric and the results of those kinds of policies. And it isn't in the abstract. It's in, you know, a body that comes in or a family that calls us. It's a matter of life and death. It isn't just something that you watch on TV and then you get to turn off and go back to your everyday life. Can you tell me, you told me on the phone, I think, about a candle you have here that kind of helps you put your emotions in one place. Yeah, so actually there these candles up there that at the moment aren't working. <laughs> they decided to give out on us this week, but usually they're, they're just electric candles, or three of them. Our routine for the person that comes into the office first and, and who leaves last is just to turn them on and turn them off as a way to to kind of leave it here because it, can, it takes a toll on you if you carry it with you all the time. During the campaign, there was a lot of focus on the Latino Trump supporters. So, one, is it fair to even ask that question, should Latinos have greater obligation to support you guys? Two, do they? I, okay. Murder of immigrant communities is not a Latino issue. And I think that's why when you see things like the Black Lives Matter movement, joining hands and and being on point on immigration issues it's because you recognize the same systems being used to criminalize and demonize and justify the death of people of color and I don't think that people of color should hear this and be outraged and step up I think that they will understand it and many of them are already doing that what I really expect um, in a way that I issue as a challenge is for people who are not people of color to step up because you know, like you know in your heart that that's wrong. That's not what our country is. Our problem is not that Latinos don't know. Our problem is that non-Latinos don't care. And they're continually trying to figure out what will make more people care. Jose Antonio, we know who he was. We know what happened. And there's some kind of public mourning that happened around Jose Antonio that I think Colibri is really trying to create for for the victims of the desert in terms of, you know, while we work to try and name the dead, just because they don't have a name right now doesn't mean that they weren't people. And, you know, each one of those is a tragedy that should break your heart. And when it starts to repair, then you get another one that breaks your heart. It's It's not okay for us to just ignore these deaths because it doesn't mean that they're not happening. The thing about Jose Antonio's death is where it happened and how it happened and and what exactly happened have are so crystally clear that it's wrong you know that it's you know impunity that you're talking about violating international law and you're talking about outright murder and you know there's a lot of attention because you know sort of this 
safer space where Jose Antonio wasn't a migrant and wasn't an immigrant in the same way. He was walking down the street, although people say, well, you know, he chose to live in a gr- drug corridor. That's the right wing thing I've heard people disgustingly say rather than he was walking down the street in his neighborhood. We can see how things should be, you know, like we can we can squint and like Jose Antonio makes it home and, you know, the Border Patrol bullets go astray and, you know, people get water in the desert and there's compassion and I mean walls fall like we could see that and that's worth calling it out you know because Mm -hmm. no one's talking about it and we really do need desperately need for people outside of the border to find out what's going on and be as enraged as we are because it's not going to change without that we have I have absolutely zero faith that change is going to come from above it's going to have to be from communities and the American public and you know outside international shaming us to do better, to be better. People who don't die in the desert and are caught by border agents are detained, and women and children who have family in the States are sometimes released on humanitarian grounds. The border guard used to just drop them off at a Greyhound bus station. So a small group of people in Tucson set up two homes for these women with children, just for them to stay while they figure out how they're going to get where they're going. Ava, my BFF, used to volunteer at one of these houses, Casalitas. It's a ranch-style house in a nondescript neighborhood. She took me there. I'm your Welcome. Hi, I'm Sydney. Sydney Teller is an AmeriCorps VISTA member and a volunteer coordinator for Casa Alitas. This program was kind of developed with the VISTA member as a, like a very integral part. That was two years ago. I'm the last VISTA member to, to serve for this program. So my whole year is going to be about sustainability and trying to make this program sustainable without somebody like me. Do you have any idea how you're going to do that? Um. <laughs> Not really. Sydney hasn't had much time to work on it. She says more migrants have been showing up lately. I'm not sure why that would be. It might be because this is an election year and because things are so up in the air as to what's going to change about border policy with the United States that everyone is thinking they should just leave now or they should just get across now if they're going to leave. Most of the women who stay here are fleeing violence. A lot of times people will get dropped off and we have to tell them that this is not another detention center. And when we say this is a casa hogar, this is a shelter, this is a refuge for you to, you know, eat and rest and take a shower and call your families, a lot of people just break down and start crying because they're so happy to be somewhere that's safe. Ava pipes in here. I took a mom and her kid to the park one time and it was just a really nice, I think it was either like kind of early morning or late afternoon and it was quiet and it was a beautiful day and we were just like, I don't know, pushing her kid on the swing or something, and she just goes, ah, es lindo Estados Unidos, no? <laughs> and I just kind of like, wow, it really like hit me, you know, like that something that we take so for granted is just like a quiet afternoon in a park, in a public park. That is what you struggle for if you're one of these women. 
back to Sydney. She happens to be white of European ancestry. Her family has been in the U.S. for generations. Are your parents still here? Yeah, they are. What do they think about you doing this work? <laughs> I think that they they like that I do this kind of work, and I think they are proud, but it I think they have a hard time relating sometimes to the stories I tell. Like, I'll, you know, tell my dad about, you know, oh, man, this one family, like, they're traveling to their family in New Jersey, and they have to go by bus, and she's pregnant, and she's also got, like, a five-year-old kid with her, and he'll just laugh because it's so absurd to him that, like, that's a reality for people. And I think a lot of people have a hard time understanding that, like, a lot of people live like this, and that it's a very real situation for some people that, you know, that they would go to such lengths to escape poverty or violence or, you know, threats by drug cartels and stuff. It's, it's a hard concept, I think, for, for some people to grasp. As I close this episode, federal prosecutors in an incredibly rare move are pursuing a criminal contempt charge against Sheriff Joe Arpaio for defying a judge's order to stop detaining people he suspects of being undocumented. Arpaio's attorney says he's not guilty. Meanwhile, the trial of the border agent who killed Jose Antonio is scheduled to begin in February. The Nogales play about Jose Antonio is about to go on tour. And a presidential election that may decide the future of U.S. immigration policy is just weeks away. Let me know what you think, as always, by posting on the Otherhood Facebook page or tweeting me at Rupa Shinoy. I'm going to leave you with what The Daily Show calls a moment of zen. As Ava and I were driving to the border from Tucson, across the expanses of vast desert, we passed a sign that said, Titan Missile Site. I asked Ava what that was, and she immediately said to take the exit because this was something I would love to see. Turns out, it's one of the sites where, during the Cold War, people lived on standby, way underground, ready to launch a nuclear missile toward Russia. So you can now go down into the Cold War bunker where military men and women lived, waiting for a call from the president to set off a nuclear bomb. And you can get your picture taken flipping the switch that could have started a war that destroyed the planet. I watched it happen and recorded it. Commander, are you ready? Ready. Give me that countdown. Three, two, one, launch. Turn, watch the light. Look at us, Nancy. Look at us. Okay, smile. There we go, release. Crew has 30 days of food and water, maybe, maybe 30 days of encapsulated air. Because once we fire the missile, that blast valve shuts, no more fresh air. After 30 days, they either stay down here and suffocate or go up and see what nuclear war looks like. Just another remnant of U.S. policy you can find in the Arizona desert. I'm Rupa Shinoy, and this has been Otherhood from PRI. Bolo Subhashan